From the Lean Enterprise Institute in Boston, this is the WLEI Podcast, where we share stories of people making the world better through lean thinking and practice. For more information about LEI, please visit lean.org. Good morning, and welcome to WLEI, the LEI Podcast. I'm Tom Ehrenfeld, a senior editor at LEI, and I'm here with Dr. Jim Womack. We're going to discuss current events and the fact that the outbreak of the coronavirus has left many in the media questioning the viability and wisdom of just-in-time supply chains and how they are now threatened by events in the news. Reading these articles strongly reminded me of something that Jim wrote in 2006, in which he may have well as written this week. So Jim, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Tom. <laughs> and. Uh, can you just start by reading from your uh, Gamble Walk essay called mm-hmm. uh, Just in Time, Just in Case, and Just Plain Wrong? Yeah, well, thanks. Sure enough, this is uh, night, uh, 2006. This was in response to the avian flu. Uh, the avian flu came after the 9-11 uh, issue. Yeah. And maybe before SARS. I get a little confused about these things. And, of course, now we've got coronavirus. But it's interesting. The media always pretty much reacts the same way that uh, the world is being disrupted because we have just-in-time supply chains. And if we didn't, never specifying quite what we would have instead, well, then everything would be fine. And uh, because the supply chains are now spread all across the world, which uh, lean thinking says challenge that, uh, that's a bad, bad tendency to spread everything out to make each production step as far from the next production step as possible. So it means that we've got lots of stuff flowing around. But uh, the, again, the, the attack on JIT is always that we don't have any inventories, and so therefore we can't supply demand. Okay, so uh, in 2006, I wrote a little essay, uh, just in time, just in case, just plain wrong. And I started by saying, first, what is JIT? It's a simple idea formulated by Kiichiro Toyota, who was the founder of the Toyota Motor Company. His father had founded the uh, Loom Company that it was based on. That was in the late 1930s. Uh, by the way, he couldn't do anything with it then, but he had the idea. And the idea was that each step in a value stream should pull precisely what it currently needs from the previous step. Okay, Pull. It's a pull system. And this would signal the previous step to immediately make new items to exactly, and this is important, exactly replace what has just been withdrawn and taken to the next step. So the idea is to replace complex scheduling systems, which depend on centralized accumulation of information and uh, complicated formulae with simple reflexive systems. That's a key word, reflexive. Uh, That's another term for pull, is reflexive, that work much better while dramatically reducing the amount of inventories along the extended value stream. Toyota implemented uh, its pull system by means of simple rules. One was that between every step in the value stream, it is critical to accurately calculate the standard inventory. Uh, In the early days, people were writing about zero inventory production. Toyota never said any such thing. You have to have a little bit of inventory between each step to deal with batch sizes, with shipping quantities, and so forth. But the standard inventory is the amount of material that must be in place so that the downstream customer is never disappointed. And it consists, wait a minute, this standard inventory has three parts. Buffer stock, safety stock, and shipping stock. And buffer stock is the goods that are already finished and kept on hand 
And that's to deal, and we'll get back to this in a minute, to deal with sudden spikes in demand from the downstream customer. Okay? So in the case of a panic of the current sort, suddenly uh, the medical system is calling for lots of masks. Maybe it's calling for lots of ventilators. So there's a sudden spike. So that's why you have a buffer stock. We'll get to that, uh, back to that in a minute. And then the second thing is a safety stock, which is finished items or raw materials that are maintained to protect the output of each step in the process if upstream suppliers suddenly fail to respond to the pull signal, right? So they could have a problem of bad quality, of broken equipment, workers on strike, whatever. So the safety stock is to protect a given step from the upstream step, and the buffer stock is to protect the customer from your step, okay? And then finally, there's shipping stock because we can't send uh, pieces one at a time. They all like to talk about single piece flow, but no one is gonna make uh, surgical masks and ship them to the hospital one at a time, right? There's gonna be a batch. So you have to build up that batch, off it goes, build up a batch. So that means you're gonna have some inventory in the shipping lane, which is entirely there just to get a, a transport size shipment. Okay, so a cr second critical role in JIT is to select one point on the value stream as the pacemaker and to add additional buffer stock there to deal with normal fluctuations in consumer demand. Uh, as much as we would like uh, consumers to behave smoothly, they don't. Nowhere do they. There's always some fluctuation in consumer demand. And so therefore you have a buffer stock to deal with the day-to-day, week-to-week, up and down in demand, so that you can run all of the upstream steps smoothly. And of course we call this hijunkum, right? <clears throat> so every step upstream can operate smoothly with that, with level demand. And when done properly, leveling demand largely eliminates the need for buffer stock, okay, between each step, and reduces total inventories along the value stream dramatically. That's good, by the way, that's a good thing. So what's the problem? And why do commentators always suggest that JIT can't work when there's chaos in the world? And I want to remind folks that mm -hmm. this is a piece that was written in- 2006. 2006. That's 14 years ago, okay. yes, correct. Well, the problem is that severe disruptions in geopolitical, by geopolitical events are natural biological catastrophes, such as we're seeing with coronavirus, have to be dealt with outside the framework of JIT, okay? Only muddled thinking results when normal commerce and extreme emergencies are combined. So how should these issues be uncoupled? Well, let's look at, and I'll now modify what I wrote in 2006, let's look at the coronavirus uh, where there's major concern about, for example, surgical masks or ventilators. People who have pneumonia, and uh, uh, coronavirus leads to a very nasty pneumonia, can't breathe. So you have to have a ventilator to help them with their breathing until their system recovers. Okay? So if you really want to deal with that, uh, governments, I uh, hate to say, but governments uh, need to make a decision on just how many spare units completed and ready to run should be kept on hand. Okay, to deal with sudden enormous uh, surge in demand. Now, back in 2006, the U.S. government had a stockpile of about 4,500 ventilators. They really did have a stockpile. But the thought was that there would be a much larger surge in demand. Didn't happen, by the way. But that stockpile, that emergency stock, is simply a physical version of an insurance policy. Physical version of an insurance policy. 
except that the policy is for society rather than for an individual. This is society's insurance, okay? Now, here's what we hear instead, that old-fashioned just-in-case inventories located along extended value streams can somehow or other solve the problem. If we just had more inventories at sort of random points along this long stream, well, then everything would be fine. We could just ramp up production and it would be great. Got plenty of parts. But of course, the, the problem is um, that there's no capacity at each step to go beyond the normal leveled load. That's why people set standard inventory to deal with standard capacity. You want the system to be running pretty close to maximum capacity. So suddenly we need a whole lot more ventilators. Well, we could have a gazillion parts. There's no way to assemble them. We don't have the equipment, the people, the skills, or whatever to have this massive increase. So therefore, it's just uh, muddle thinking. So, now, and by the way, thinking that companies on their own, in any case, uh, could keep mountains of buffer stock or finished units uh, is simply naive. They would go bankrupt. So what uh, government needs to do is to decide how to distribute the emergency stock that they have prepared before the fact, that is an inventory, because in these panics, well, price allocation really is not acceptable to people. You can do it through price allocation, and the rich people all get a ventilator, and the poor people all die. Uh, that's a tough sell uh, from an from a equity and justice standpoint. Um, so that's, that's the deal. Okay. So it sounds to me like one of the issues is that people are conflating, conflating mm -hmm. capacity with availability. Mm -hmm. That the question of capacity mm -hmm. relates to how much is in a system and how smoothly the system is flowing mm -hmm. and producing. Mm -hmm. Whereas the availability, mm -hmm. uh, I'm using it to refer to the amount of um, finished goods mm -hmm. that are available for use mm -hmm. and ready to be deployed or used mm -hmm. at those emergency moments. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and it gets a little more complicated with this world that we've created where uh, companies have tried to move the production of every step Right. in a value stream to the lowest cost point in normal circumstances so that labor intensive activities should be done in Burkina Faso or somewhere mm -hmm. and uh, highly sophisticated technological processes should be done uh, in the US or Germany or wherever. So we've created a system where there's a lot of movement, okay? And uh, that means you might have to have an emergency reserve at a number of points, okay? But wait a minute, one more thing, this is fascinating, that uh, in the case of China, in the early weeks of the coronavirus, uh, demand for cars fell by 90%. 90%. Consumer demand? Consumer demand. They can't leave their homes. In Wuhan, nobody's buying a car, right? So, wait a minute. <laughs> the problem actually is a lack of demand rather than a lack of supply. And that depends on where you are. Hey, Italy, you know, right now, suddenly a hot spot for coronavirus. I would guess car sales aren't doing too well uh, at the moment. So when you have a real crisis, uh, there are lots of other things that can happen, including a collapse of demand. Um, I uh, once worked uh, years ago, uh, I hate to say this, paid by the Office of Emergency Preparedness to think about how to design a rationing system for gasoline after 1973 and uh, the, the energy crisis. 
And uh, we had two teams. Our team was trying to figure out how you would do rationing. And the second team was trying to figure out what would happen to demand. And what they figured out was that if you had a real energy crisis, and by the way, 73 was just draining the system, everybody filling up their tank and creating uh, the appearance of a crisis when there really wasn't. But if you had a real crisis, the economy collapses. There's no demand. <laughs> so it doesn't make any difference. You don't need rationing cards. You need some way to re-stimulate the economy. You're working on the wrong problem. Okay, so things are complicated, but uh, that's sort of the big picture. Well, let's try to um, tease out and isolate the most like important salient lean point here. Mm -hmm. To me, this feels like, um, it feels like the real issue has to do with debate st mm -hmm. stability. Mm -hmm. That um, small systems and large systems are really tested mm -hmm. in, in these unique moments, mm -hmm. okay? Mm -hmm. And one of the most important um, benefits of having a, a real a robust lean system mm -hmm. has to do with the creation of stability mm -hmm. and that it, it and in fact it's the opposite of what many of these articles suggest mm -hmm. the article suggests that these systems are more fragile mm -hmm. that they're more mm -hmm. vulnerable to mm -hmm. spikes in demand mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. kind of unique uh, uh, crises whereas feels to me that those companies that have stable lean systems, stable lean supply chains, mm -hmm. are in fact better positioned to anticipate and respond. And um, is, do you think that's mm -hmm. a fair thing to say, or, or, or you know? Well, I uh, do uh, separate emergency from normal. Okay. Okay. And we don't know when, but it turns out it looks like uh, we have these spikes. We had avian flu. We had SARS. We got coronavirus. Uh, is this the last time that uh, some pigs or raccoons in some country are going to uh, uh, slip some uh, viruses across into the human side? Probably not. Okay. So it would be sort of naive to think that uh, this is the last of these. I wouldn't think so. But there is a question for society, which is how much insurance do you want to buy? How much emergency stock do you want to provide? Okay. That's not an easy thing to figure out, by the way. Uh, what's the frequency of these spikes? How big are the spikes? Uh, what is the deterioration rate of the emergency stock that you've put aside, if it's drugs? Two years and maybe the stuff's no longer any good. Okay, so uh, you'd have to have some, um, it's not that hard, the math, but you just have to decide. How big an inventory do we want to have, and that, let's call that the emergency stock, to deal with the crisis? Now, hang on, uh, for the long term, uh, when you look at the world as a commercial system, it seems to me the long-term trend is going to be that people rethink these long, long, long supply chains and uh, do what I call lean math and figure out where the logical place to make things is, which, by the way, might include some consideration of what do you do with a big spike, right? So, for example, if uh, autom automobiles and their parts for the North American market were very largely made within the North American market, well, then you have a very different situation than if an awful lot of the components are made on the other side of the world at a place that, uh, you know, perhaps has been a generator of these biological uh, crises, okay? So uh, th there are many reasons why having a supply chain extended out across the world creates vulnerabilities, but not due to just-in-time. 
It's simply due to the physical location and the disruptive potential that's built in by doing things in this way. Uh, you know, take the most extreme case. Let's suppose that just suppose that all motor vehicles uh, made by America, bought by Americans, are 100% made in the USA. Okay, just imagine that. Uh, if you have a coronavirus problem in China, it has no effect whatsoever. Okay, you don't have the need for emergency stock because the system works within a bounded space. Okay? Now, do I think people ought to do that? Uh, no, not by uh, rule, but, you know, not by government regulation. But do I think companies ought to think a little bit more about their vulnerabilities? And so there's nothing wrong with JIT. You're not going not gonna to deal with vulnerability by going from JIT back to big batches that are allocated by big MRP systems. That can't possibly have any effect, okay? And I think that's the bias. I think that is what fuels the question and, and the, into whether JIT is vulnerable. Mm -hmm. Because the assumption is that JIT does away with, um, you know, safety stocks, does away with mm -hmm. the, um, uh, you know, uh, mm -hmm. comfort zone of having mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. excess finished goods mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. um, in, in parts goods. Yep. And tell us again why having an excess of, of um, say, surplus parts in process mm -hmm. is a bad thing. Well, it's a bad thing. It costs a lot of money. And it doesn't create the good thing, which is the ability to immediately respond to a spike in demand, because there's no capacity to translate or convert those parts into usable products. They're, they're constrained. Right. And uh, hey, by the way, here's another thing you could do. Uh, just imagine that you said, gosh, what we need is for every car plant that's running at reasonably full output, we should have another car plant that's mothballed. Uh -huh. That's what? Mothballed. It's, it's just sitting there. Yeah. The workers are just sitting there. This is the emergency reserve, the FEMA of automotive production. And they're just sitting there waiting for the horn to sound, uh, which says, whoa, you need to immediately ramp up to full output to deal with this crisis. Right? So come on, no one would propose that. Is there a kind of lean should have in this instance? Is there a kind of exhortation, like a, a lean response mm -hmm. to something like this? What, if companies were to take lean seriously, if mm -hmm. yeah. it could be deployed in a productive way. Mm -hmm. Well, if you haven't got any emergency stock, uh, somewhere pretty close to the customer, you're out of luck, okay? Uh, that uh, the lean response uh, I advocate is people like us need to say something when uh, particularly uh, the kind of media, by the way, the Wall Street Journal, which I ought to know better, has always been the worst on this. Yeah. Um, that when people say these dumb things, we need to say something uh, to say, whoa, wait a minute, you've got a situation and you're proposing a solution that can't make it better it might make it worse. So why would you do that? Okay. So lean thinkers ought to say something. Hey, we're saying something, Tom. Right. Doing the best we can. So let me switch gears and um, tie it to a new LAI book, Steady Work by Karen Gaudet, mm -hmm. um, which is a, a lovely uh, first-person account of her work at Starbucks um, in basically building in daily stable Mm -hmm. improvable systems mm -hmm. and it's punctuated by the events in Newtown Connecticut where there was mm -hmm. a, a mass shooting and it was mm -hmm. tragic mm -hmm. 
And the response at that store was, was essentially heroic. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it was really built on a foundation of steady work mm -hmm. because they didn't have to mm -hmm. think about mm -hmm. the work, mm -hmm. but rather could do the work. Mm -hmm. it, it, it kind of released them Mm -hmm. to have more human interactions at mm -hmm. a time when mm -hmm. human interactions was mm -hmm. essentially what they yeah. were, were yeah. called for. Yeah. Um, so that to me feels like a very uh, notable lean takeaway. Mm -hmm. And I, I wonder if it's kind of fair to equate that mm -hmm. with what you're saying about the mm -hmm. uh, lean systems and yeah. coronavirus. Well, it's interesting. I just saw an example uh, from the book in real life this morning. I was uh, coming down to LEI. I uh, get on the Green Line, our uh, ancient uh, subway in Boston. Always hoping for the best. I always have, hate to make a product endorsement, but I always have my Starbucks. And uh, someone or something across the street at the office building had caused the fire alarm to go off. This was about 1030 in the morning. And people had poured out of the building and poured straight over to the Starbucks. So the Starbucks is now full. Now, that's analogous to what happened in Newtown. The people pouring into the Starbucks were the first responders who had been on. This is not just the instant of the event, but they were there for a while. And the media. So there are a gazillion media. There are a zillion firemen and policemen and so forth who are, you know, just need a break. And so they wind up with a demand that way exceeds uh, their supply. Now, what I saw at the Starbucks this morning was really very interesting. The crowd is there, and they're all lined up. And the fellow who's the team leader uh, behind the, the counter uh, stands up and announces, hey, folks, here's what's happened. We've had this big surge, and here is our capacity. This is the limit of our capacity. So that we're uh, running now that we can flex and have more people on, less people on, and so forth. Through time of day, they do that. But right now, at the minute, this is our capacity. And so therefore, uh, we're doing the best we can. We've got no wasted time. We've got no wasted effort. But realistically, it's going to take about 10 times as long as you would normally wait for a Starbucks. So, you know, if we had massive vats of coffee on the roof, you know, massive uh, dark roast pipe place up there that we could be just pouring down. But our coffee system can only produce coffee at the rate it's producing coffee right now. Right. So therefore, uh, we, we're doing the best we can. We're not going to be, you know, um, just collapse because of this and the confusion and all that, which can actually happen. That output actually falls because the staff's so overwhelmed and they abandon standard work and all kinds of chaotic things start to happen. But instead, said so we're going to run at our full output, our standard pace, heads down, everybody working, won't have time to chat with you. But realistically, it's going to take a lot longer. And you might want to think about, you know, there are other places around uh, what we do. So I thought, well, that's really interesting. He knew their capacity. Right. He knew what they could do. That in trying to deal with this uh, wave, they didn't just suddenly panic and start just doing whatever, which you've seen in lots of situations if you've lived for a long time. Oh. Um, okay, when things start to go south, well, they actually get worse than they need to be because the system actually doesn't produce at just its normal level. Things start to fall apart. Uh, Guy Parsons and I observed the uh, operations at a, 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 kind of a high-end restaurant in town. Mm -hmm. And they were very good 
and they were, it was a remarkably sophisticated production system mm -hmm. to make mm -hmm. wonderful food, mm -hmm. very consistent. And I, I talked to the sous chef about it, and he said, yeah, Tom, we're great all the way up to 98.5%. Mm -hmm. We do everything perfectly, no flaws, great food. But then right when we tip up to the fullest, mm -hmm. everything falls apart. Mm -hmm. And we're mm -hmm. running around, mm -hmm. uh, firefighting, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. he mm -hmm. wanted to find a way to make it work consistently all the way up to mm -hmm. 100, yeah. all the way up to 11. Yeah, yeah. and uh, maybe you can do that, <laughs> and maybe you can't, okay? Uh, that uh, you have to be realistic, um, that just in general, when people try to go faster than they can, they discover they can't even go as fast as they could. You try to go faster than you can, you can't go as fast as you could. If you said, uh, this is our standard work, we can't, we can't do it faster. <laughs> you can't do it, you just make mistakes, right? So that's, um, you know, it's a sobering thing. But uh, there are some constraints. One of my favorite essays in your book, Gamble Walks, is called More Farmers, and I don't know if it's fewer heroes. Heroes, yeah. So where you basically say mm -hmm. the heroic work is mm -hmm. done on a daily, mm -hmm. humble mm -hmm. basis. Mm -hmm. it's, it's not mm -hmm. uh, kind of creating and then heroically responding to mm -hmm. crises that mm -hmm. the system produces. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, and there is this notion that we somehow or other perhaps are born with, but perhaps we learn it, uh, I don't know, in school or wherever, that if you have heroic leadership and adrenaline, you can actually produce more than you thought you could produce. This is interesting, but it's magical thinking. Okay, it's magical thinking. Uh, one of my favorite examples, of course, is Tesla, uh, where you have the heroic leader who has the sleeping bag and sleeps at the end of the line, and is somehow are they going to encourage or uh, ex exhort or <laughs> threaten the lads to go faster? But you can't go faster than the equipment will permit, than the materials flow will permit, than your skills will permit. Um, you know, really, it's amazing that uh, we all have this kind of notion that we can, if we have to, just go faster. But you, you know, you forgot to pack <laughs> for the trip, and the Uber is at the front door. You say, oh, well, this would normally take 10 minutes, but I'll get it done in two, right? And then when you get to Singapore, uh, think about all the things you don't have. So it's, uh, there, there are some constraints there. Yes, today, February 25th, the Tesla performance um, belies your argument. Mm -hmm. I'm just, I'm mm -hmm. not saying mm -hmm. you're wrong. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. It's just interesting that they've uh, quadrupled their stock in the past year. Yeah, okay, but that's the stock, that's not, Tom, what's that got to do with? I'm just, yes, presenting this, mm -hmm. playing devil's advocate. Well, okay. But, um, look, I can't deal with that. Uh, it is uh, interesting that uh, they're now talking about their new uh, Shanghai plant, uh, and that gets us back to the coronavirus and all that. But uh, pointing out that they've been able to ramp it up much more quickly because they're using cheap Chinese labor and much less automation. Okay. And the whole reason they got uh, broken down at Fremont to begin with was that they were trying to heroically automate final assembly, which people have looked at for 50 years, and there's been a little bit of progress, but it turns out it's really, really hard. So uh, the premise there was with the heroic leader, 
we will just find a way to do what no one else has been able to find a way to do. Interesting idea, but magical thinking. Okay, so actually Fremont got a whole lot better when they ripped out uh, all of the automated stuff that they couldn't get to run. Okay, so that's all right, but what I'm saying is that heroic leadership, and now let's go back to the Starbucks. Suppose that you had this heroic team leader who says, folks, we, our maximum capacity would appear to be 100 cups of coffee an hour or whatever. But we're going to but shift into ludicrous mode. We're going to, that's right. <laughs> we're going to go to ludicrous mode and we'll make 200. Well, wait a minute. The coffee making equipment can't make it. The hands can't move fast enough, right. so forth. Um, there are, uh, in real life, whether you're lean or you're not lean, there are constraints. And so that, uh, actually, I think the, the brilliant thing about steady work uh, is that it showed they knew what their capacity was. Okay. And in trying to surge to create so much more capacity, they were realistic and said, you know, we could make a little bit more up to X, but we can't make more than that. And so if we want to do more than that, then we have to get other Starbucks stores to chip in and start adding their capacity or whatever, right? And so the most powerful response was based on a kind of a thorough self-assessment, an understanding of what they were able to do mm -hmm. and to do well. That's right. And the ability, even when the pressure is on, to perform at that known doable maximum rate without getting distracted, without uh, getting scared, without um, just steady at full output, right. steady at full output. Uh, but you can't go faster than uh, basically the equipment and the available people on hand. Okay. okay. Um, fantastic. Thank you, Jim. Thanks again to Dr. Jim Womack for this episode of WLAI, the LAI podcast. If there is a topic that you would like to see on the show, um, please email us at pod, P-O-D, at lean.org. Uh, we will be taking your questions, suggestions, and feedbacks and making this podcast better every time. Thanks to Emma Ripp for her help with this production. And thank you for listening.